Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll be finishing up chapter 2 of Philippians. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 30 of that chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. As we continue studying the epistle to the Philippians, we find ourselves in the last study of chapter 2. So you can turn to verse 19 of chapter 2, Philippians 2, verse 19. That's where we'll begin. Today's study focuses on two servants of God, Timothy and Epaphroditus. For me, in these passages, one about Timothy and one about a man named Epaphroditus, I can't help but see a bit of a contrast between the two men and their attitudes in service. And I think this passage is useful in teaching us, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, that we have different gifts according to the grace given us. He says that in Romans 12, verse 6. We have different gifts. We are all at different places in our spiritual maturity. God has prepared each of us in different ways to serve him. And I think these things are illustrated in the differences between Timothy and Epaphroditus. This passage in Philippians also reminds me a bit uh, that these early messengers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that these were real people. They weren't superhuman. They were living in a real world, facing the same sort of struggles that we face. And that's one thing that makes the Bible great. In the Bible, we're not only given pictures illustrating the highest realms of theology, but we're also given pictures of real people living real lives, facing, as I said, the same struggles that you and I face. And I think that the many instances in the Bible where personal relationships and concerns and struggles are highlighted, I think that reflects the fact that God cares for us personally. God doesn't only want to communicate the details of Christian doctrine, he wants to let us know that he understands our struggles as we live as humans in this fallen world, and that he loves us despite these struggles. And so, in many places in the Bible, we get to know on a personal level various people and their struggles in some cases and their successes in other cases, their weaknesses and then also their strengths, their highest highs and sometimes their lowest lows. And this is reflected here in chapter 2 of Philippians. This chapter, if you recall, began with this great passage that describes Christ's incarnation from his position in glory as he became a man and humbled himself in that way. And then here, the chapter ends with this very down-to-earth description of two fellow servants of God, two people who helped Paul out during his captivity. So let's begin first by looking at the passage about Timothy, which starts in verse 19 of chapter 2 of Philippians and goes through verse 24. So let's read Philippians 2, verse 19 through 24. Quote, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 
But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon." Timothy was, as we've talked about before, Paul's right-hand man, so to speak, you know, his most trusted companion. Timothy's importance and prominence in Paul's ministry is reflected by the fact that Timothy is mentioned as a co-sender, co-author even, of six of Paul's epistles in the Bible. And of course, Timothy was the recipient of two other epistles of Paul, 1st and 2nd Timothy. So Timothy figures prominently in eight of Paul's 13 epistles. Here in this passage in Philippians, Paul gives us reasons for Timothy's prominence in his ministry. Verse 20, the NIV translates the phrase, I have no one else like him. This is one way to translate the phrase, but I think it misses a subtlety which is contained in the Greek. Uh, We can see this um, difference in translation. If we look at some other translations, New King James Version, for I have no one like-minded, American Standard Version, for I have no man like-minded, CSB Version, Christian Standard Bible, for I have no one else like-minded, NASB, for I have no one else of kindred spirit. The word translated like in the NIV is translated like-minded or kindred spirit in other translations, and those translations reflect the word better, I think. You can see that by just looking at the word in Greek. uh, The word is isopsychos. The prefix iso means same. We use uh, that same prefix in English for things like isosceles triangle, which is a triangle with two sides which are the same size, isosceles, uh, if you remember your geometry. Or we use the word isotope in chemistry, isotope. Uh, isotopes are elements which are the same as each other, except for having a different number of neutrons, if you want to get technical about it. The part of the word psychos in Greek refers to one's inner being or soul. So a literal translation of the word in the Greek would be same-souled, S-O-U-L-D. Strong's Dictionary defines it as equal in soul, which is a beautifully artistic translation, I think. Um, so that's why many translations use the, the word like-minded. But for us in, in English, like-minded can refer to people who just agree on pretty much everything. I think the Greek word goes deeper than that. I think, actually, like the New American Standard Bible translation, the best, which is kindred spirit. Paul and Timothy were kindred spirits, which is a nice way to translate that uh, word same-souled or equal in soul. So you see that this word reflects a bit of a deep connection between Paul and Timothy, a connection that goes beyond just agreeing with each other on things in general, but it's a connection that reaches down to their very souls. And so so what Paul is conveying to the Philippians here is that Timothy is a worthy representative of Paul, a man who can effectively step in for Paul. The Philippians can be assured that whatever advice or instruction that they receive from Timothy would be similar to what Paul would have advised because they are kindred spirits. They are like-minded or or same-souled. Paul 
as we see in verse 19, plans to send Timothy to Philippi as his representative. And so Paul wanted to assure the Philippians that they were in good hands with Timothy representing him. And even, uh, you know, they would have been in good hands if, if Timothy carried on Paul's ministry. Remember here that there was a bit of a possibility that Paul would be martyred. And so I think Paul was preparing the Philippians for that by effectively making Timothy his, I guess, replacement in the eyes of the Philippians and with regard to the spiritual mentorship of the Philippians. Paul's saying that Timothy is like-minded with me. He's a kindred spirit and he loves you just like I do. Or as Paul says in verse 20, Timothy has, quote, a genuine concern for your welfare. It's interesting how Paul states this and he uses a bit of hyperbole here to make a point. Here's what Paul says again, verses 20 and 21. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Unquote. Paul's point here is that even among Christians, it's a rare trait that Timothy has. He has genuine concern for others and a deep concern for the cause of Christ, far above concern for his own interests. Paul says, quote, everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, unquote. By using the word everyone, Paul is, as I said, using a bit of hyperbole here, you know, saying everyone looks out for their own interests. But then again, if you think about it, it is probably strictly true. We, even Christians seeking to serve the Lord, often naturally have our own interests in mind. And it's a struggle I think we all have. So Paul is emphasizing what a widespread problem it is that even Christians are looking only to their own concern primarily. Paul wrote earlier in this book about some who were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. Let's look at Philippians 1.17 once again. Quote, The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Unquote. This is rather an extreme example of self-centeredness when serving the Lord. Usually such a thing is more subtle. And as I said, it's probably something that everyone struggles with to some extent or, or another. And of course, this is natural, natural in the sense that all creatures on earth have this natural instinct to preserve themselves above all other things. It's an instinct that we're all born with. But we as Christians need to rise above these natural animal instincts and act with genuine concern, as Paul puts it, um, genuine concern for others, even above concern for ourselves. And, and that's what it means to be Christ-like. If you read the Gospels, Christ never put his own concerns first. Paul writes in Galatians 6.2 that we are to, quote, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, unquote. So Paul there is calling this genuine concern that we are to have, he calls it the law of Christ. And like so much of the law of Christ, so much of what Christ preached in the Sermon on the Mount, this genuine concern that we are to have, it implies a purity of heart, not just a purity of actions. Christians aren't just supposed to do good works. We're supposed to do good works with the right motives and with a pure heart. Peter speaks of this when addressing elders in the church, or as he calls them, shepherds of God's flock. Let's read 1 Peter 
chapter 5, verse 2, quote, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, unquote. And so what Peter is saying there is that motive matters. The attitude of the heart matters. Be shepherds, Peter says, not because you have to because you know, you're an elder, but because you truly care for the people who are whom you are shepherding. Not because you may get some monetary benefit or something out of it, but because you are eager to serve, because you truly care for those whom you are serving. Jesus expressed the same sentiment when he said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, quote, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Unquote. Again, this points to motive, points to an attitude of the heart. Don't serve with the motive that you want others to see you serve. But in fact, if possible, serve in a way that others don't even know it. In fact, that can be a bit of a litmus test for the motives of your service. Would you still be carrying out your service for God, even if no one else knew that you were doing it? If the answer is yes, then that's a good thing. It points to a, a pure heart for service, not a heart that desires the accolades of men. So the point here is that purely unselfish service is a bit of a rare thing. And Timothy was rare in this respect. Timothy had this pure heart, this genuine concern for the Philippians. And Paul wasn't just speculating about this solidness of Timothy. Here's what he says in verse 22, quote, But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel, unquote. Paul knew Timothy's character because, as Paul says, Timothy had proved himself through thick and thin, Timothy demonstrated his dedication for the cause of Christ and for the work of the gospel. Paul points out elsewhere that proven character comes as a result of perseverance through suffering. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Let's look at Romans 5, 3 and 4. Quote, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and character hope. Unquote. Here, Paul actually tells his readers to exult or to rejoice and even boast in their sufferings, in their tribulations, in their trials, because trials have a way of strengthening and proving one's character. When we serve God and face trials while doing so, we wonder, why is God doing this? Well, we have an answer. Trials produce perseverance, and then such perseverance proves our true character not only to others, but also to ourselves. And then when we come out on the other side of a trial, this gives us hope, as Paul said in that passage in Romans 5, hope that we'll persevere to the end. That word there in Romans chapter 5, translated proven character in the New American Standard Bible, is the same word that's used back in Philippians when Paul says that Timothy has proved himself. So Timothy's genuine concern for the Philippians and his solid character isn't just theoretical. It has been proven to Paul because Paul had witnessed how Timothy persevered through trials and, and how he looked not just to his own comfort, but had demonstrated his concern for others and a dedication to the work of the gospel. And so then, 
Paul is demonstrating his own true love for the Philippians because he's willing to send the best that he had, willing to send his right-hand man, Timothy, to Philippi. I'm certain that Timothy was a great help to Paul in Rome, so it was a bit of a sacrifice on Paul's part to send Timothy away from Rome to Philippi. And more than just a help to Paul, there was a strong emotional connection between Paul and Timothy, as strong as the connection between a father and a son, as Paul uh, implies here in this passage in Philippians. Uh, Paul, in another place, also spoke with more tender words toward Timothy. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, quote, For this reason I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord, unquote. So there was an emotional tie between Paul and Timothy that was quite strong, as strong as a father-son relationship. Now, though Paul was willing to send Timothy, whether Timothy actually went was up to the Lord. And Paul says that in verse 19, I'm confident in the Lord Jesus. Uh, He says, this reflects that Paul leaned on the will of Christ in all matters for all the decisions that Paul made. He says, I'm confident in the Lord Jesus that to do such and such. Paul depended on the Lord Jesus for the realization of any plans that he had. And so should we. We should bring everything to him for confirmation and approval. That's a good habit to get into. It keeps us on the right path. So that's a section about Timothy. Let's move on to the section about a man named Epaphroditus, who was an envoy from the church at Philippi. Uh, He carried from Philippi to Rome some sort of gifts to Paul from the church at Philippi. We learn this in chapter 4 of Philippians. Let's look at uh, that verse very quickly. Uh, Philippians 4.18, here's the second half of that verse. uh, Paul writes, Quote, I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, unquote. So Epaphroditus was a messenger from Philippi who brought Paul supplies of some sort. And then, which becomes apparent here in this passage in chapter 2, the plan was for Epaphroditus to stay on in Rome and to continue to help Paul out. Let's read the passage about Epaphroditus. Uh, We'll be reading up to the end of the chapter. Philippians 2, verses 25 through 30. Quote, But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you have heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give." I see here a bit of a contrast between Timothy and Epaphroditus, though they both deserve commendation for their service. Timothy, as we discussed, was all in on his service for the gospel with no reservations. He put his service of God above all personal priorities. And as Paul said, Timothy had proven himself in the work of the gospel as one who was totally dedicated to furthering the kingdom of God. 
Epaphroditus faced a serious trial as he embarked on his mission to provide aid to Paul while Paul was in captivity. At some point during the journey, or, or maybe just after he arrived in Rome, Epaphroditus became seriously ill, and as Paul tells us, he almost died. But he did recover, and the danger had passed, and yet, even after his recovery, he became greatly distressed and a bit homesick, it seems, so much so that Paul had to send him back to Philippi. So, with Epaphroditus, I think we have someone who perhaps took on more than he was ready for. His illness shook him, such that after he recovered, his heart, it seems, was no longer, you know, into his service as he longed to return home. Perhaps Epaphroditus entered into this service thinking that he would have some supernatural immunity to trials and troubles. We tend to think this, I think. We tend to think, well, if I'm serving the Lord, then I have a supernatural protective force field around me. You know, after all, I'm serving the Lord. Of course, I'll be indestructible. But in fact, I think quite the opposite is true. What I have noticed is that those who embark on any significant service for God are almost guaranteed to face trials proportional to the service that they are embarking on. In fact, I would counsel to anyone embarking on service to God rather than expecting smooth sailing and a supernatural force field around you, I would counsel them to be prepared for rough sailing, to keep an eye out for trouble, and in fact, to expect trouble rather than be surprised by it. It's part and parcel with serving God. Satan battles against our service, and the bigger the service, the bigger the battle, at least That's been my observation. So be prepared, be ready. Expect trouble and trials when you embark on any service to God. Odds are that they will come. Now, you might ask, why would God allow that? God has power over Satan. Why wouldn't God put me in a supernatural force field and make me immune to trials since I'm seeking to serve him? Well, there are various reasons for this. Let's look at a few of them, though. I want to presume to speak for God. Um, first, you know, it's clear in Scripture, God seeks to make us stronger. God seeks that we uh, prove ourselves through trials. We looked at this earlier when we discussed Timothy's proven character. Timothy proved himself through perseverance. And we looked at some verses in Romans that talk about how suffering makes us stronger. Let's read them again quickly. Romans well, second half, Romans chapter 5, second half of verse 2 to uh, verse 5. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and character hope. God wants us to persevere, and frankly, he wants the best of servants. So he allows Satan to throw trials at us, even as we seek to serve the Lord. He does this in order to engender perseverance, in order to prove our character. Another reason God allows those who serve him to experience trials is that it's a check on our pride. God wants us to know that in and of ourselves we are weak, but through him we are strong. Such trials increase our dependence on God as we serve him and put a check on our pride so that we don't get the silly idea that somehow God needs us, that somehow it's through our own power that we serve him. Trials increase our dependence on God. 
Paul speaks of this when he writes in 1 Corinthians about his famous thorn, which was tormenting him. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Quote, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Now, we don't know what the thorn was exactly that Paul was afflicted with. And there are many speculations about that. I don't want to get into that right now. But it was some sort of trial for Paul, some sort of suffering for Paul. And Paul states that a reason for the thorn was to keep him from being conceited. He says, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh. And this was a serious trial for him, so much so that Paul pleaded with God three times to take it away. And what was God's answer? God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So it's not about our power, but about God's power. The trials that we face are a check on our pride, and they get us to realize that we serve only by the will of God and only through his power. Paul realized this, and and he recognized the good things that came through the trials that he faced, so much so that in verse 10 there in uh, 1 Corinthians, he says, that is why For Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong." The trials strengthened Paul and, and gave him the right attitude. It's through God's power that Paul was effective in service. So both Timothy and Epaphroditus faced trials, but Timothy proved himself and persevered. Epaphroditus faced a serious life-threatening illness and recovered from it. But then after his recovery, he, frankly, did not persevere. And as I said, was a bit homesick, it it seems to imply in the text. Here's how Paul puts it in verse 26 back in Philippians 2, quote, For Epaphroditus longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill, unquote. Now the word used here, distressed, is a word that denotes a very strong feeling of anguish. In fact, it's the same word that was used in Matthew 26, 37 about Christ in Gethsemane. It's, it's that level of distress, extreme distress. Epaphroditus's distress was so bad that Paul himself was having anxiety over the whole situation, as he points out in verse 28. Quote, Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. And so it just didn't work out. The the long-term plan for Epaphroditus to stay with Paul and minister to him just didn't work out. And this happens. We set out at times with the best of intentions, with an idea of how we will serve God, and it just doesn't work out. Perhaps Epaphroditus bit off more than he could chew in this case. Perhaps he hadn't counted the full cost of what he was doing, hadn't taken into account 
The strong ties that he had with those in Philippi hadn't considered that he would long for them with so much distress. So maybe there's a lesson here that we should all be careful a bit when we embark on a service for the Lord, that we need to carefully consider, am I ready for this? Have I considered all aspects of this? And we should consider all of the costs and prepare for such things. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to discourage you from serving God. I'm just saying we should prepare for such things. Prepare for trials and persecution and afflictions and for things to happen. We're not going to have a force field around our, ourselves just because we're serving the Lord. And preparation for such things will make our service more successful, I think. Count the costs and be ready for them. Because as I said, many times we think, well, I don't have to worry about the cost because God will you know, protect me supernaturally. You know, I'll have this force field. But that's not a biblical principle. Uh, on the contrary, the Bible is clear that even those, really, especially those who are serving God mightily, well, they do face trials and obstacles and stumbling blocks. So we should be prepared for such things. Because if we're not ready for such things, then at the first sign of trouble, we're liable to give up. I've heard this too. Someone will embark on a service for God, then they'll face some obstacle, and then they'll say, oh, God must not want me to serve him in this way because I face this obstacle. But that's not necessarily the case. In fact, as I said, we should expect obstacles and trials when we embark on any meaningful service for God. And ideally, we will persevere through those obstacles and serve him powerfully. In fact, it's so common to face obstacles as you embark on serving the Lord that you, you can really bank on it. It will happen. So, so you should be prayed up and prepared for it. Uh, now, for those who subscribe to the force field idea, well, we just have to look at Paul's life to burst that bubble, you know, to negate that idea. If, if anyone would be thought to have had some, you know, miraculous God-given force field around them, Paul, you know, should have been that man. After all, Paul was a tireless servant of God whose entire life was dedicated to the service of the gospel of Christ. Yet clearly, Paul did not have a force field around him. We learn this from Paul's own words about the obstacles and trials and suffering that he endured. Let's look at a passage about this, a really uh, heavy and kind of touching passage where Paul describes some of the trials he faced. Let's look at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. Quote, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches." Unquote. So clearly, Paul had no such force field. On the contrary, he faced countless obstacles and trials, apparently, as he served. 
Yet he persevered and he overcame these obstacles by the strength he got from the Lord. Moving on, having said all this about Epaphroditus, Paul does, in the end, sincerely commend Epaphroditus. He doesn't hold Epaphroditus's partial failure against him. First, Paul does consider Epaphroditus to be a valued servant of God. Paul calls him, quote, his brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, unquote. Paul recognized that Epaphroditus did carry out a service that was valuable and that helped him greatly. And then Paul uh, went out of his way to tell the Philippians to commend Epaphroditus for his service, rather than to focus on the fact that he was not able to totally complete what he set out to do. Here's what Paul says in verse 30, quote, So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me, unquote. So, though Epaphroditus was not able to complete what he set out to do, he did accomplish a lot, as I said, in making that long journey from Philippi to Rome to deliver to Paul the gifts from Philippi. He did step up to that difficult task, though perhaps his ambition overreached a bit, you know, uh, from his abilities. His will was there, even though his body ended up being not as strong as his ambition. So we should encourage those who step up and serve the Lord, even if the result of their service isn't 100% successful. We should commend them for their effort and encourage them and help them find methods of service that maybe are more in line with their abilities. And we should all serve. We should all encourage others to serve. And we should all commend those who do serve the Lord. And if the path upon which we set out to serve the Lord turns out not to be the correct path, we should in no way be ashamed. Rather, we should praise the Lord that he cares enough to lead us back onto the correct path. Nor should we disparage others in such situations when they feel that the Lord is leading them from out of one mode of service into another. Rather, we should encourage them greatly to follow the leading of the Lord. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond 5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling. All rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen. <laughs>